The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. to blow the trumpet in Zion. Welcome to Pilgrim's Progress, brought to you by the National Prayer Chapel with Pastor Ray Greenlee. I have wonderful news for you today who are concerned about the work of the gospel. I want to thank each one of you who gave for the month of November We've had total victory. Every penny is in place today with the pledges for November Pilgrim's Progress Radio. I have to say thank you, Jesus, and thank you to each of you who sacrificed. After the broadcast yesterday, we were not quite there. We still lacked $300, more than $300, $475. But the phone kept ringing. The text came in. And by the time last night had arrived, every penny was in place for the November bill. So what you give now will go forward for December. Thank you. Now I'm surrounded today by Bibles and books as I've been studying and trying to understand the Word of God. My whole life is given to understanding the Word of God. I read it, I study it, I weep over it. I feel the greatest sorrow of my heart is the loss of men and women that do not turn to Christ in part because of my own inability to understand, to be able to say it clearly enough to you what I need to say, that your heart would be convicted, that you would turn to Christ, that you would become a follower of Jesus, not just in word, but in action. Now there's one passage of Scripture that in particular gives me great heartburn, I want to read it for you. And I want to preface it by saying, every heresy in the Christian faith has always had its roots in a misunderstanding of what Jesus Christ did at the cross. And this is one of those chief passages of Scripture that has been twisted in almost every Bible so that it does not accurately reflect the truth of the gospel. Let me read it for you. I'll read first from the old NIV. This is Second Corinthians, the fifth chapter. I'll begin with verse 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, 
so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is one of the chief proof texts that teach that Jesus became sin on the cross. It was imputed to him, they say. What do I mean imputed? I mean it was assigned to him. It was handed over to him. He became this. And then they carry this the next step and say, it is an exchanged life. Jesus died in sin so that you could live in righteousness. And so now they say that the righteousness of Jesus becomes your righteousness. And so people will say to me, I am the righteousness of God. I am the righteousness of God. We need to take this verse apart. You need to understand what the actual Greek says. Let me read it for you. The literal words of the Greek are as follows. The one, not having experienced sin in behalf of us, sin he took. Those are the literal Greek words translated into English. Let me read it for you again. The one, not having experienced sin, In behalf of us, sin he took. Let's pray. Lord, if you don't come with power and untangle these faulty things that we have believed, we will continue to live believing that we have the knowledge of Scripture while in fact we have the traditions of man, we do not have the truth. And Lord, you said the truth shall set you free, not the traditions of man. So Lord, I plead today that you would open for us the truth, that we could hear and we could understand. I pray in your holy name, Amen. Now let me read the translation in the NIV. And by the way, it's the same in the ESV. It's the same in the King James Version. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now if you take this sentence as it is now translated in English. The subject is God. The subject is God. But in the Greek, the subject is Jesus Christ. It makes all the difference in the world. In fact, the word God is not even in the Greek. It was added. A translator made the decision to add the word God because it supported his supposition that Jesus, 
became sin on the cross. How could God become sin? How could he be God and be sin? That's mysticism. It's insanity. It cannot be true. Jesus did not become sin on the cross. You cannot impute sin to a man, and you cannot impute righteousness to a man. Sin is always connected to actions. Sin is always rebellion against God by the definition given to us both in 1 John and in Titus and in other parts of Scripture. Sin is volitional, voluntary rebellion against God. So sin is an action. I cannot say you took this action when you did not take that action. I cannot make an innocent man a sinner by saying, okay, now I make you a sinner. No, a man becomes a sinner because of what he does. A man becomes a sinner by his actions. It is rebellion against the Most High God. So, it says, God made him who had no sin to be sin. Now, please remember, if you make God the object, and the word God is not in the sentence, if you make God the object, you must also know that it was Jesus, with God working in him on the cross, that brought salvation to us. We cannot separate Jesus and God the Father or God the Holy Spirit. They are a triune God. They are one. You cannot separate one God from another. We don't serve three gods. We serve one God. Did God the Holy Spirit become sin on the cross? Did God the Father become sin on the cross? If you believe that Jesus became sin on the cross, then you must say that God the Father and God the Holy Spirit became sin also. Now, who's going to pay the price for God's sin? And how can God judge sin if he became sin? You see, this is nonsensical. Jesus did not have sin imputed to him so that we could have righteousness imputed to us. This is insanity. It does not stand the test of logic or reason. It is pure mysticism. Now, in truth, the subject of this sentence is not God. It is Jesus. The translation that is literal says, the one not having experienced sin in behalf of us, sin he took. He did not become. 
Where did he take the sin? He took the sin to the cross. He did not become sin. He did not become sin. He took sin to the cross. Now, how should this be translated in correct English? He, Christ, took sin in our behalf. The one, that is Christ, not having experienced sin. Let me read it for you again. He, Christ, the subject, took sin in our behalf. The one, that is Christ, the object of the sentence, not having experienced sin. Jesus never experienced sin. He bore our sins on the cross. He did not become our sins on the cross. Now, do you understand? If you say that Jesus became sin on the cross so that you could become his righteousness, then God is sin, and who pays for the price of God's sin? There is no one to pay the price of God's sin. If God is a sinner, then we're left without salvation. Please, now let's go to the full context of this passage. You cannot take one passage and translate it as you choose without looking carefully at the context of that passage. It's in 2 Corinthians, the fifth chapter. I'll begin with verse 14. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. Now please understand what I'm saying. The scripture is saying that Jesus died for us on the cross. For every human being, he died on the cross. He did not die for a few select people, as the Calvinists want to teach us. The scriptures say we are convinced that one died for all. Jesus died for every human person who has ever lived. It says, and therefore all died. In other words, Jesus has now died for all sinners on the cross. He did not cover your past, present, and future sins at Calvary. When we say a finished work at Calvary, one group of people means that Jesus paid for your sins, past, present, and future, on Calvary. And now if you say, I accept you, Jesus, and I repent, save me, please, that now you're saved and you can continue to walk in your sin. As one pastor, very popular radio pastor, said you can even take the mark of the beast because all your sins were forgiven at the cross. So Jesus will forgive you for taking the mark of the beast and you'll be saved. What utter nonsense. 
That's not what this passage of Scripture says. It says that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Now let's let's be very straight. Let's be very clear. When Jesus died on Calvary, he condemned all sin and all sinners to hell. When Jesus died on Calvary, he condemned all sinners to hell unless that sinner is born from above and transformed and metamorphosed into a new creature. In other words, Jesus passed judgment on all sin and all sinners. And the only avenue open for us to escape the final judgment of God is to turn and be transformed by the power of God into a new creature that is righteous. You see, Jesus does not cover you with his righteousness. He makes you righteous for real. Let's follow. This is verse 16, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 16. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. What is the worldly point of view? That I'm going to make progress, I'm going to improve myself, and there's nothing that I can't accomplish. I am a small God. That is the worldly view of man. When the going gets tough, the tough get going. If it's going to be, it's up to me. All of these foolish sayings that Robert Schuller brought forth and Napoleon Hill and Clyde Bristol and a whole group of occultic people. This is foolishness. It is a worldly viewpoint. Now, He's saying, we once regarded Christ in this way. We once regarded Christ as an avenue by which we could better our lives. We once regarded Christ as the rabbit's foot that we could rub for good luck. We once regarded Christ as the one who would give us everything we wanted from him. I walked into a a Barnes & Noble bookstore and there was a woman sitting at the table across from me. She had on a t-shirt and across the front of the t-shirt it said, Life is good. She's delusional. Life is not good. Life is death. I just heard of a precious woman a young woman in her 30s dying of cancer, last stage, 
three little children and a husband. You tell that husband and you tell the children that life is good. No, life is not good. And then Christians want to come along and say, well, God is good. Yes, God is good. But God is also more than good. In his goodness, he will pass judgment. In his goodness, he will pass the judgment of death. So when a person says to me, God is good, I don't give the answer all the time. When someone says to me, God is good, I say yes. And he's as tough as nails, but he loves you. And he died for you. See, all of us died when Jesus died. Oh, not physically right then. But the final sentence of death was passed on the devil and on all sin. Therefore, verse 17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. And that word new means in the Greek, something that never existed before. Different from anything before. He is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. This is for people who are in Christ, in Jesus. Now, I've said it many times to you, and I I need to keep reminding you, you cannot be in the world and in Jesus at the same time. You will be in one or the other. And the sentence of death has been passed on everyone. Jesus did not become sin for you. He wants to transform your life and make it into something totally new. It says, the old has gone, the new has come. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. Now, in the context, you have to understand He's not counting men's sins against them if they have received Jesus Christ and are now hidden in him and are new creatures. But you see, I was taught, as you were probably, that Jesus became sin for me. And so I was taught that all I had to do was the best I could do that I could never live a holy life. I could never overcome sin. That that wouldn't happen until I died because Christ exchanged his life with me. He gave me his righteousness and he became my sin. That led me to a, a casualness 
about spiritual things. And then when you add to that the smorgasbord of wonderful options you have every day, options for what you're going to eat, what you're going to wear, where you're going to go, who you're going to see, and your day is filled with busy activities, not realizing that every second of your life is ticking away until you reach that place where you die. And at that place, if you're not in Jesus Christ, you're cast into hell. You need to understand this. Life is extremely short and and very precious. And every moment must be taken advantage of to read the word and to understand what's being spoken here to us. There's no room for casualness. There's no room to put off until tomorrow because you don't know if you'll have tomorrow. Tomorrow is just a promise. The only reality you have is right now. What have your actions been in the last 24 hours? How do you stand before Almighty God? How do you stand before a holy God? Are you holy? Are you hidden in Christ? Not in some false belief that you now have been imputed Christ's righteousness. No, he wants real righteousness in you. He wants to make you into something totally new. It says, We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you, or we beg you, on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. What does reconciled mean? It means we've come into agreement with God about our sin and about our condition. And we have allowed God to change us, to transform us, so that we now look like what God wants us to look like and act the way God wants us to act. And then we come to this fatal passage. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's blasphemy. It should never have been printed on paper. There's one small consolation in the old NIV, and that is there's a note that says God made him, God made him who, who was the sin offering for us. He calls him a sin offering, and that's what he was. He was an atoning offering. He was not a sin offering. He was an atoning offering. So again, this verse should be translated, he, Christ, the subject, not God. God is added to the passage. The context demands he, Christ, 
took sin in our behalf. The one not having experienced sin. He took sin on our behalf. He who was no experience of sin. Jesus never sinned. And he didn't take he did not become your sin on the cross. He took your sin to the cross. And he died holy and righteous. I mean, Martin Luther says Jesus Christ was the worst sinner that ever existed in the human race because he took every man's sin and became every man's sin. What a lie! He did not become the worst sinner to ever exist. He could not. He was God. But he took our sin at the cross. He bore our sin at the cross. Chapter 6. As God's fellow workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, In the time of my favor I heard you, and in the day of salvation I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. We put no stumbling blocks in anyone's path so that our ministry will not be discredited. Rather, if servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way in great endurance, in troubles, hardship, and distresses, in beatings, imprisonments, riots, in hard work, sleepless nights, and hunger, in purity, understanding, patience, and kindness in the Holy Spirit, and in sincere love and truthful speech, in the power of God with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and in the left. Through glory and dishonor, bad report, good report, genuine yet regarded as impostors. I mean, Paul is saying, look, we've been through it all for Jesus. And then he says, we are not withholding our affection from you, but you are withholding yours from us. As a fair exchange, I speak as to my children, open wide your hearts. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers, for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common, or what fellowship can light have in darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Bilal? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore come out from them and be separate. Touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you. Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. If we received and exchanged life at the cross of Jesus Christ, why would he not receive me now even though I touch an unclean thing? Because I have the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. So why wouldn't he why wouldn't he receive me? Well the answer is plain. I don't have the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. 
You cannot impute righteousness to another person. That's mysticism. It's not reality. Jesus, in reality, has to come into your life, and you have to allow him to rip the flesh of the old man off of you. You have to turn and say, Jesus, do you see what I love in this wickedness? Would you please remove this from my heart? And would you put hatred in my heart for this sin? Would you show me the way of the cross, Jesus, and would you cause me to be crucified with you? There must be a decision on your part. It is not all up to God. He provided everything on the cross for you and for me. He did an incredible work on the cross. It's in the cross I glory. But what matters is a new creation. You must become a new creation. And to do that, you're going to have to say no to the devil. You have to and come alive and begin to dedicate your time and energy and money to searching after Jesus Christ. You're going to have to get serious with God. You can't laze your way into heaven. When I hear some of the things that are happening in the churches, in the casual, laid-back entertainment of the day, I shudder because God's people are being tricked. They're being fooled. They're being deceived with unrighteousness, with the belief that they've been made righteous by Jesus becoming sin for them and exchanging his life for theirs. And now, as some great evangelical preachers teach on radio every day, if you sin, you're only going to miss some rewards when you get to heaven, so don't worry about it. As one popular preacher said, go to church and have fun. Church should be a place where you go to have fun. Have a good time. Talk with your friends. Enjoy them. And while I'll agree that church should be a place of sober joy, it should be a place where the pastor is speaking such straight words against a culture such as America's that every man and woman should shudder for fear they be cast into hell. It's not a time to take for granted some lying word that Jesus became sin so that I could become his righteousness. What folly! These words don't make sense in context. Come out from them and be separate. Why do I need to come out and be separate if I'm covered? And so it's clear in the research There's no measurable difference between evangelical Christians and non-evangelical Christians. According to Barna Research and according to Focus on the Family and their research, they found no discernible difference between the way a, a pagan lives his life and a Christian lives his life in America. They spend their money in the same ways and on the same things. They go on the same vacations. They travel the same places. I hear Christians saying, oh, we're going to Las Vegas on vacation. Really? You're going to Las Vegas on vacation? 
to Sin City to do a little gambling, to go to some of the wicked shows. This is what your heart desires? And you call yourself a Christian? Come on. This is insanity. Where are the moral values? Where is integrity? Where are the basic Christian values? Therefore come out from them and be separate and touch no unclean thing. And I will receive you. I will be a father to you. And you will be my sons and my daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves. It says, let us purify ourselves. How do we do that? We put to death the sin by the power of the Holy Spirit with the blood of Jesus. I'll be even more specific, and we're going to deal with this later. The blood of Jesus only opens to us the promises of God. Second Peter tells us that we participate in the divine nature through the promises of God, and every word of Scripture holds in it a promise of righteousness if we will read it and turn aside from the wickedness of this false teaching. Since we have these promises, promises, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves. We purify ourselves by the promises of God by standing on those promises, by crying out to God against the sin we see in our heart. And we ask Jesus, based on the promise, that he would remove that sin from us and make us righteous. This requires a great deal of time and honesty, a great deal of soberness. And right now, God's people are getting ready to go into crazy land with Christmas, where the seduction becomes so powerful and so strong. It destroys God's people. Now, yes, we do need to look at what Jesus did when he became a baby, and we're going to deal with that in the coming days. But let's not get caught up in the world, the flesh, and the devil as they find themselves wrapped in in green and red and Christmas decorations. Let's stay focused on Jesus. Since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body, and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. I'm going to open the phone lines. Some of you may have questions. I don't want to argue with you. If you're calling to argue, call somebody else. This is precious time for for the work of salvation to be accomplished in men and women's hearts, for you to confess your sin, for you to repent, for you to become sober, 
and leave the the drugs and the alcohol of this world. Our phone number in studio is 877-534-0780. I'd be happy to pray with someone. The phone lines are wide open. If you'd like to call, please call quickly. We don't have a lot of time left in the broadcast, but I do need to open it and invite you to call if you need me to pray for you today. 877-534-0780. Now it's very clear to me that Jesus did not experience sin, but he took sin in our behalf in order that we might be made righteous by God in him. Made righteous. Now, it's interesting, that word, made righteous. I want to share quickly with you the the deep Greek meaning of that word. The word is Jinnahi, Jinnahi, in the Greek. And literally, it means the same thing. In fact, in English, we get the word generator. That's the word in the Greek from which we derive the word generator. What does a generator do? It creates energy and power. It creates electricity. This this passage of Scripture is saying, for the one not having experienced sin, he took sin in our behalf in order that we might be made righteous, made, generate, created. Righteousness is created by God. All righteousness comes from Jesus. But it's not imputed righteousness. It's real righteousness. It's imparted righteousness. And it transforms us and makes us into a new creature. It metamorphoses us. It totally changes us so that you no longer want the things you used to want. But that doesn't just happen automatically. That happens as we begin to see who Jesus is. We begin to see that we face certain death. And we, with wisdom, say, I don't want to die. I want to be made alive with Christ Jesus. I want to live in the power of Jesus Christ. Well, why would I want that? Well, listen to me. What are the works of the body that is dying, of the flesh? What are the manifestations of the devil in our lives? Adultery. Fornication. Uncleanness. Indecency. Idolatry. Witchcraft. Hatred. Discord. Jealousies. Outbursts of wrath. Strife. Dissensions. False teachings, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and things similar to these. 
As I told you before, even as I said before, that the ones practicing such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, if the manifestations of the devil are operating in you, you will not inherit the kingdom of God claiming some imputed righteousness. He then goes on and he talks about the fruit of the Spirit. When a man or woman is in Jesus Christ, this is who they are. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faith, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there's no law. In fact, the one or the ones who are of Christ crucified the flesh with the passions and the lusts. If we live in the Spirit, we should also walk in the Spirit. Now in Galatians, the fifth chapter, verse 16, Now I say you must walk in the way of the Spirit, and you absolutely cannot fulfill the lust of the flesh, i.e. the fallen nature. Now the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. Indeed, these things oppose each other so that you may not do these things that you may desire. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. And then over here in Romans, and I want to turn there quickly for you. Over here in Romans, the eighth chapter. I want to read this. Now, in like manner also, this is Romans 8, verse 26. Now, in like manner also, the Spirit takes hold with us against our weaknesses. We know not what things we might pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself meets with us in our behalf with unutterable groanings, so the one searching the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, so that in accordance with God he pleads in behalf of the holy ones. Now we know that all things work together for good for the ones loving God, for the ones being called according to his purpose. This glorious truth, that Jesus Christ loves you. All of heaven has been poured out for you. Ephesians tells us that not one spiritual gift has been held back from us. I just read to you the list of spiritual gifts, love, joy, peace, long-suffering. But to walk in those, you must be crucified. And you must, by the Spirit, put to death the works of the flesh. It's not by law. It's by grace. Grace is the divine influence of God that comes into our heart and teaches us to say no to ungodliness. And we must listen to that still small voice as he speaks to us and turn away from the sin and stop participating in it. We must have the victory. If you don't have the victory, you can't dwell in Jesus Christ. You are cast out. Don't be comforted by this supposed exchange life between you and Jesus. 
Don't be deceived by thinking that Jesus became sin for you so that you could be his righteousness. That's not what happened. Jesus did not become sin. He carried our sin. He bore our sin to the cross. He was righteous on the cross. He was holy on the cross. He never sinned. He submitted fully and finished the work on the cross, the work of providing the opportunity for salvation for you. Now you have to decide, are you going to get serious with Jesus? The cry of my heart is that you would get serious with Jesus. The cry of my heart is that you would get serious with Jesus. That you would turn aside from this world and seek your eternal salvation. For most of you listening to this broadcast are not saved. You have been deceived into believing that you are saved. But you still walk like the devil. You're still full of cynicism and anger. You're still full of darkness. And Jesus is saying, Come. Come, all you are heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. The gospel, the good news of the gospel is that as we come to Jesus, by the power of the Spirit, in his aligning his self with us against our sin, by the power of the blood we're washed and made clean, by the promises of God we enter into the divine nature. I pray that you understand what I'm saying to you today. That you begin to search your heart and your life and say, Really? Do I really think I'm going to go to heaven this way? Do I really think I'm going to go to heaven with this impatience and bitterness in my heart? Do I really think that I'm going to be taken into heaven and be allowed to walk like this? Now, if you're trusting on some last-minute deal where your sin is going to all be removed and now you're going to be holy, it's not going to happen. Your last day on earth and your first day in heaven, you're going to be the same character as you are now. The only difference will be your body will be totally redeemed and new in a, in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye. The corruption shall put on incorruption. That's not talking about your character. That's talking about your, your body. Oh, yes, your mind will be strengthened, your heart will be strengthened, but you will be the same in character. Either now, in this time allotted, you become righteous and holy, or you will never be righteous and holy. Almighty God, I plead your mercy for your people today. I know you love every person listening to this broadcast, and I know you died for them on Calvary. And I know you bore their sins on the cross, and that all men die 
at the cross, either unto salvation or unto hell. Lord, I plead now your mercy. I plead that you would send your Holy Spirit to quicken the heart of every person listening and begin to bring conviction into their hearts. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. I invite you to come to the National Prayer Chapel if you're serious about Jesus and you want to meet him. I tell you, the last meetings we've had have been so profound and so powerful in the Spirit. I've never seen anything like it, and I'm praising Jesus for it. Would you come visit us, the National Prayer Chapel? We meet at the All Saints Anglican Church in Woodbridge, Virginia. Let me give you the address. It's 148 Five one, Gideon Drive. That's one four eight five one, Gideon Drive, Woodbridge, Virginia, two two, one nine two. Drive around to the back side of the parking lot, and you'll see a large sign saying "Lower Lobby." Come in the double glass doors, and the church sanctuary will be immediately on your left. Come worship with us. Hear the word of God. I also invite you to go to our webpage, nationalprayerchapel.com. Nationalprayerchapel.com. You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenley. I pastor the National Prayer Chapel. God bless you, my brother, my sister. I'm praying for you. I love you. I'll talk to you soon.